Hey there, I'm so pumped to tell you about an amazing new community I've launched called Grief to Growth Circle Community. It's a space for people who are grieving to come together to support each other and for people who want to know who we are, why we're here, where we're going to have those conversations, all the things we talk about on the podcast. So I invite you to join me at grieftogrowth.com slash community to become part of this compassionate crew. The best part is 100% free. And you have access to me in addition to everybody else in the community. In fact, the podcast will be there so you can talk about the things we talk about in the podcast right there in the community. There's also some premium content if you want to go deeper in the work I'm doing, but mostly it's about building relationships and community and about sharing resources and supporting each other. So come on over and check it out. It's grieftogrowth.com slash community. I'll see you inside. Hi there. Welcome to Grief to Growth Podcast. Your host is Brian Smith, spiritual seeker, best-selling author, grief survivor, and life coach. Brian believes that the worst tragedies of life provide the greatest opportunity for growth. Brian says he was planted, not buried, and he is here to help you grow where you've been planted by the difficulties in life. In each episode, Brian and his guests will share what has helped them to survive and thrive. It is his sincere hope this episode helps you today. Hey, everybody. This is Brian Smith back with another episode of Grief to Growth. And today I've got with me my uh, internet, my Facebook friend, Kim LaCapria. And I think the best way to describe Kim would be as a professional skeptic. Um, She's actually had a job working for Snopes.com, which is a fact-checking site. And now she works for a site called TruthOrFiction.com. And Kim and I met uh, a while ago. And Kim, I think at the time I could say was still probably a materialist. And we'll get into what how are we going to define those things? But Kim's gone through quite an evolution in terms of her, um, I don't want to say beliefs, because it's not really about faith, but her understanding, I would say, of reality over the years. So with that, I want to introduce uh, Kim LaCapria. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Kim, I really appreciate you doing this. And I'm really uh, interested in talking to you because, you know, I come from a background of faith. I come from, first of all, religious background. And then I, you know, kind of know what I believe now. But I really wanted to talk to someone that kind of came to your understanding from more of a materialistic background. So first, maybe you could explain to me, what is your background or what's your understanding of, of the types of things we're going to be discussing today? Well, I was, um, I, I was raised Catholic. I went to Catholic school. And then um, after that, you know, in college was really kind of, um, I mean, I don't think I ever really had a strong belief system in anything. Um, you know, in the 90s, there was a lot of interest in paranormal topics and urban legends. That's how I kind of got into the work that I was doing. Mm-hmm. But um, <clears throat> I was probably around 20 when I kind of realized I just didn't have any of those beliefs. I mean, it kind of happened very suddenly. So um, it's, it's kind of like a lot of them go together. So if you don't believe in ghosts and alien abductions and things like that, you kind of assume that you don't you know, believe in anything. And, um, you know, nothing really ever tested my belief system. I never had experiences that I can recall, or if I did, I just kind of wrote them off. Um, <clears throat> you know, it was like, I misunderstood what happened or, you know, sometimes even like small things, you put something down in one place, there's no way it could have moved and it's somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So I always assumed it was faulty memory. Um, I was never the type of materialist who was, um, like, I think there's a tendency among skeptics and materialists to be, um, you know, to mock people for their beliefs. And I never thought that was ethical. So I never really, um, I never engaged in any of that. And I didn't do a ton of paranormal debunkings. It's just that, <clears throat> sorry. 
I also just had no belief in, well, like you were saying, I don't think belief is the right word, but I strongly, firmly was of the opinion that consciousness does not survive death. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of almost like the top level belief. Everything comes down from there. So there are ghosts, there are no, you know, uh, visitations, mediums aren't really reading, you know, the thoughts of dead people or the, so all of those things kind of come from a top level belief, which is like whether or not our consciousness survives death. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, and I know that you, you're married and, and so tell me about your husband and your, your relationship with him. My husband and I actually met, um, in 2002 around Mm -hmm. then on, uh, the forum for Snopes. So we met through our shared interests in both. Um, he was, uh, a linguist. That's not the job that he did. That's what he went to school for. And that has a lot of, um, overlap with folklore. Um, there's folk linguistics. So there are all these kind of related topics Mm. and we met on that forum. Um, and then we started dating in 2006. So we were together from 2006 until 2017 was when, we got married, and that's also the year that he died. <clears throat> mm. So even just that progression of events, I don't think that the progression of event, events changed anything for me. It felt extremely surreal. Like um, it felt to me like reality had really bad writers, yeah. and you know, it, was, it was such a ridiculous series of events to occur in that way that it was like, you know, come on, I'm not buying this. I'm, you know, this is the plausibility test, is not. So it, it didn't make me question reality, but it did make me, it just felt very surreal. Um, so, you know, we had a really good relationship and we talked about everything, um, especially because we were separated so often. Mm-hmm. He was in England and I was here. Um, our relationship was, um, we had to talk a lot more than the average couple because we couldn't just quietly sit and watch TV. We had to talk. So we pretty much knew you know, what the other person's feelings were on everything. And both of us were so strongly materialists that the topic never even came up, not even like in a late night kind of, well, if I die first, I'll give you a signal. Yeah, It would be as preposterous as talking about what we were going to name our pet unicorn. We just never had that conversation. Right. Um, You know, so even now I find myself kind of being like a little bit confused because it was so out of our realm of everyday topics that we, um, Occasionally we discuss string theory, but that really wasn't kind of, you know, it's so vaguely related that right. it didn't meaningfully affect what we knew about the other person. So you guys were both materialists and yeah. you, you meet in this skeptics form. I would say though, I have to say, cause this is mm-hmm. something that he would say he did twice claim to see ghosts once in his house in England and mm-hmm. once at a site like a castle. Mm-hmm. And then I would always, whenever this came up, I'd be like, but you know, there are no ghosts. You say that he's like, I know, but I know what I saw. So he did have this strange duality where he sure. claimed that was true, but he was adamant that, you know, consciousness didn't survive death. So we were, it was weird. And I think you see that with materialists a lot once you kind of step out of the movement. Well, yeah, because they've got they've got this worldview, and this doesn't fit into their worldview. So, therefore, as you were saying earlier, you have to find a way to dismiss it. Either it was a hallucination, or a misremembered, or you know something to that effect. Yeah, and I think that's actually changing in discourse a little bit. I've said this before, but um, you know, back when we met on the internet, uh, when I met him, uh, the internet was a lot more linked to your identity, and the communities were a lot more insular. Everybody knew who everybody was, even if it was with you know by your handle and not your real name mm-hmm, right so people were a lot less inclined to um stick with a story like they might tell a story like that then other people would step in and offer plausible explanations and they would say oh pro- that's probably what happened 
Right. And now I think we're seeing people congregate in very large Facebook groups and on Reddit where their real identity isn't necessarily attached to their handle. And you'll see these threads where like, you know, what is your unbelievable story that had to be paranormal? And, and hundreds and hundreds of the comments will start with, you know, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in heaven or hell. <laughs> and, and then they'll tell the stunning account of, but I was, uh, I was in bed falling asleep one night and I saw my brother-in-law and he told me to take care of his sister. And we had this conversation Then the phone rang and I found out he died. I mean, it's like you can almost predict it. And that's kind of, it's amazing to see, but I think it has to do with the fact people can say these things in places and not necessarily have to have people know they have this crazy story. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's, that's, that's really wild. It's really interesting. So so your husband passes away and you're still a skeptic at this point, I assume. Yes. Okay. And yeah. And I remember my mother-in-law, you know, she was, um, you know, she did believe in an afterlife or, you know, and, and I said that I didn't. And I said, you know, I wish that I could, but, uh, and then it was very strange. I avoided for 20 years watching the movie, what dreams may come. Oh, and it was on movie. my, <laughs> it was a good movie, but it was on my in-laws DVR. Mm-hmm. And every single night when they were trying to figure out what to watch, it was like, Oh, please don't pick that. Please. I knew what it was about. And I was like, I don't think I can handle it. But that was the first time I was exposed to it. That for some reason, after having it on the DVR for months, they decided to play it then. So I ended up watching it and it didn't make me think like, Oh, this sounds plausible. Or to me, it was just a fantasy movie. Yeah. So I, I want to call your husband. What's his name? I want to use oh, his name. name is Joseph. I Joseph, call him okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I want to use his name. So, um, so you still have this, this materialistic worldview. And so what, what opened your mind to even exploring something beyond that? It was a strange, like, okay. So, one of the things that I felt initially was like, you know, people would tell me uh, stories about, you know, the types of stories that we're talking about. None of them swayed my opinion because it was Mm -hmm. so firm. But I also remember thinking, I don't want to be a person who changes my belief because of this. I didn't want to change what I understood to be true because of what I wanted to believe was true. Right. And, you know, we've talked about before that I think that that's actually, um, it's, it's like a, it's a missed interpretation you know and i know that knowing this stuff does not actually make it very much different in the day-to-day sense like i could know this but i still can't go to target with my husband the way that i used to you know it it doesn't really help as much as people believe it is but because that's a materialist trope and i believed it i really felt strongly that way so i wasn't setting out to be like if i can find one thread i'll follow it um what ended up happening was, um, like I mentioned, he lived in England. So I was staying in England. Um, and normally I was working at Snopes at the time. We didn't really have time off in, you know, uh, I, that was time off. But also I, I was in a state where I couldn't really work if I wanted to. So I had a lot of free time. And mm-hmm. also, um, sorry, because I believed that death was the end of consciousness, um, I felt that the only thing that I could do for my husband was know what he experienced and mm. understand it the best I could. So I started reading accounts of people and I really did not have any intent of, you know, of finding what I did. I figured near death experiences were the closest to, because we have to understand is for a person who's a materialist, um, we all believe that near death experiences had been debunked already. There are right. people supporting that. So there was no, to me, there was no risk of um, of thinking that if I read them, that would change my mind. Because I already understood or believed that I understood they were hallucinations. 
Mm-hmm. But I figured that if I read enough of them, I could get an idea of what it was like to die. So, so that you could get an idea of what his hallucination was like. Yes. Well, okay. also not even not. I didn't even think of it that way. It was more the physical sensations. Right. Like I wanted to know if people said it was very painful mm-hmm. or if they lost consciousness quickly. Um, you know, if they said it was easy. So I was kind of hoping that I would read that it was a peaceful experience. Okay. Yeah. And I thought that I would read about, um, you know, because what materialists say is the case is that um, everybody needs Jesus. Only religious people have NDEs. Um, and they're all very brief. And because your neurons are dying, you hallucinate a tunnel and you hallucinate sounds. So mm-hmm. I thought that that was the case. And I started reading your death experiences. And what I found, I mean, because I had all the time in the world for at least three weeks where I couldn't go anywhere, couldn't do anything. And I read these a lot. And what mm. I found was that what I had heard about near death experiences was completely false. Um, and I heard, you know, I'd always, and I've seen people make this argument on social media, but I was reading them and they were not all meeting Jesus. They were not all religious people. Uh, they were not all about tunnels. I don't think I even read about one tunnel. They were mm-hmm. these extremely detailed accounts. And at that point, my, thought was oh well this is different this is not what i thought but it didn't change my mind i was just like oh this phenomenon is totally misrepresented <laughs> and you know from there i kind of moved over to consciousness and i was just reading out consciousness and i was like well you know researchers have probably debunked this and then it looked like researchers were seriously examining it and i was mm-hmm. like wait what <laughs> how could this be possible because one of the other lines in the materialist community is that no serious science has ever validated any of these claims right And then I looked and there's this big list of studies under this entire topic. And then I, uh, I found out about the university of Virginia and I was like, wait, this actually, I couldn't believe it existed. So the more research I did, it was definitely like falling down a rabbit hole. Every place I thought was a dead end led to somewhere else. Every place Mm. led to, well, there's more information this way. And it was all credible. So that was kind of the turning point for me, but it didn't change my mind. Right. So what did change your mind? What was it that, what was the thing that triggered you? Well, I talked to you. (laughs) Um, So I started joining groups because every, another thing was like, at this point, every step in my journey was thinking, even after this experience, my, my thought process was, well, if I go back to what I, you know, the, the sources I'm familiar with, Mm -hmm. it will reaffirm what I always knew. This is just an outlying thing. So I started joining, I joined a few groups. I don't even remember how I got into Cyrus's group, like what led me there, mm-hmm. but I joined that group. And I think I openly said I'm a materialist. Well, I said I'm an atheist. I didn't know the word materialist. Yeah, yeah. And I said I didn't believe in an afterlife. And, um, and then I mentioned wanting to talk to a medium. And my thought process was mediums are kind of the central, um, you know, uh, the central flim flammery of afterlife woo, right? So Sure. Mediums are, you know, they're grief vampires and skeptics always debunk them. I read a lot of debunkings. Um, and I thought I had that part on lock. And I was like, all right, if I talk to one of these nymphs, and if I find the best one I can find, and, you know, they're going to prove to me again that this is all, you know, a bunch of nonsense. Right. And you recommended medium to me. And And that was the point where I think my mind changed, but I did still that night go back and read as much as I could of people debunking mediums, Mm -hmm. thinking that it would at least, because at this point it is extremely uncomfortable, not just to change your mind, but also if your, your, um, 
your belief system, which that was a belief system, is tied into your identity and your career, which it was. Right. Um, that makes it that much harder. But a huge ethical tenet for me is that, you know, no matter how inconvenient something true is, if it's true, I have to accept that. So I started looking over debunkings again, thinking that they would sway me or at least make me not, um, you know, make me suspicious of what happened, but they didn't. I realized at that moment I could see where all the errors were and I could see where all, and that's the, the post that I wrote that you shared mm-hmm. kind of goes into that a little bit, but it's much more in depth than that. So I remember after hanging up the phone, it was a long reading. It was like over two hours. I hung up the phone and I was like, oh no, I'm going to have to tell people about this. <laughs> and it, like it sunk in at that moment. I was like, I think that all of this stuff that I'm seeing actually is valid and I have been wrong all along. And now I also have to tell people I was wrong because nobody who does what I do is saying that. So that's kind of where I was then. Well, I, you know, I really appreciate um, the fact that, you know, first of all, you, you explored. I mean, and, and this, but this is your background. You're being true to yourself. You're, you're a debunker, but the, the idea of a debunker is you look at the evidence, you look at the data. And so you asked for a medium and I know this is, this is what I believe. I believe in synchronicities because I just met this amazing medium. Her name is Carolyn Clapper and she's a friend of, of both yours and mine, I think at this point. And I'm like, I'm going to tell Kim about, about <laughs> Carolyn and you get the reading with Carolyn. And so tell me about how that reading went. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, I'm testing out a new feature. I'd love to get your feedback on it. It's called Fan Mail, and you can send me a message right from the show notes of the podcast. So look for the link that says send me a text. You can ask a question for a future podcast. You can suggest a guest or just give me any feedback you want. Just remember, it is one way I can't text you back, and I will not have your name, your email address, or your phone number unless you include it in the message. Let me know what you think. Well, it was, it was a very good reading. It was nothing like what, <clears throat> sorry, I vaped someone I was talking. Um, it was nothing like what I understood readings to be like. It was nothing like what I'd seen on TV, but I also strongly feel that she had to be the medium I talked to because I've had great readings with other mediums since. Not a lot, but a few. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that anybody has Carolyn's style of being so specific. Um, right. And also you can just tell when she's... <clears throat> relaying information um she's kind of not afraid of describing stuff she doesn't fully understand or um relaying things that might not make sense to her i think a lot of mediums sometimes don't do that so she's kind of almost like um she's developed in her own way so um during that reading it actually started out for the first hour or so we talked about my work and all those things and it was extremely accurate and it didn't just um involve stuff that had happened I took a lot of notes and it was stuff that was going to happen in the near future or she said was going to happen. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the validations came later. Um, One of the things that she said now, at this point in time, nobody had ever left that workplace before. It was a small workplace and we never had anybody leave. And she mentioned a shakeup and people leaving and somebody was going to leave soon. And to me, that was implausible. And Mm -hmm. I told my editor about it. And then at that time we had two editors or three editors and within four days, one of the editors accepted a fellowship and left. So she was the first person to ever leave. Like I think at the time, if I recall correctly, we didn't even have a separation procedure. We had to invent one mm-hmm. or not invent one, but you know, we had to come up with one. So mm-hmm. that was one of the first things It was minor, but it was, you know, invalidated a lot. And there were, 
sorry, many more details like that. So um, the first part she talked about, um, you know, my family and things like that, and those things were accurate. Um, and then my work. And it was strange because the reading had been going on for like an hour at that point. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, you know, um, this is impressive, but, you know, nothing has come about my husband. And then um, after about an hour or so of reading, she said, um, but this isn't why you called me, is it? And I said, no. And then she said, um, there's a validation here that I like to keep secret just, you know, for other mediums. So I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, but yes, yes. She did say, um, she said, who is Joseph? And for me, that was like another pivotal moment because one of the things that I'd always heard or read about mediums is that I actually last night in Facebook memories, speaking of synchronicities, I saw a meme that I shared like five years ago of John Edward and it just was a picture of him and it said, does anybody in the audience have a dead relative whose name begins with any letter of the alphabet? Yeah. And that's exactly. like materialist humor. Right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I, and at the time I shared it, that's what I thought John Edward was. So she said, um, who is Joseph? And I said, he's my husband. And I didn't say anything else. And, and then she said, um, oh, he's here. And then she, she validated some more stuff. And, and she said, you don't call him that. You call him. And she said what I called him. Mm -hmm. She said, usually call each other baby, which is true. And from there, it was like the evidence. She can be like a machine gun of evidence. Yes. And there was just so much evidence that it was like I was trying to write it down. It wasn't recorded. And, um, you know, I didn't even think about any of that stuff at the time because I – I went into this thinking like this lady seems polite um, and I'm not going to be mean about it, but I know she's not going to change my mind. So I wasn't prepared for any of this. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, the evidence she started talking about um, a trip that we had gone on very recently, like just a few months earlier and um, things that we'd done years ago and, you know, things nobody was present for. And she described the layout of my, or our bedroom here and of his bedroom in England and, um, you know, different places. She was describing them extremely specifically. Um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and nothing was unspecific. Actually, I have these bottles on my desk. And one of the things that she said was, um, she said, he keeps showing me a bottle of essential oil. Um, and I said, oh, well, I got him a bottle of oil for his little humidifier so it would smell nice. And she was saying, no, that's not it. And this was going on for like a while. Like I was trying to place this essential oil. And mm -hmm. she said, no, it's like a little bottle. And, and he's showing me like it smells good. And I was like, um, I was like, oh, and it was this. It was my wedding perfume. Oh, wow. It was like an essential oil. And she said that before I identified it, she said, he said you put it on every day and it makes you sad. <clears throat> and he doesn't want you to be sad when you put it on. He wants you to be happy. So you know, that was one of the other things that um, was not aligned with what I'd heard about mediums was that if I said, yes, I recognize that she right. would say, oh yeah, well, that's what it is. She always rejects things. Yes. <laughs> she, she'll keep saying, no, keep going, keep going, keep thinking. And then, you know, in the strange circumstance where you can't place it, she'll tell you to write it down. And usually if I write it down, it's something that does come up later. Yeah. You know, Kim, that's, it's really interesting because you have a lot of what I think are common misconceptions that mis that, that, um, that materialists have. I mean, like you said, mediumship and there are, I mean, let's face it, there are frauds out there and there are people who aren't very good and they're very vague. And the joke about John Edward, it's spot on because I've seen mediums do that, but there are mediums like, like Carolyn. And I think you got the person that you needed to get. Yeah. Who are very specific and I and I deal with a lot of really good mediums and they will I will try to take something and they will say no that's not what I'm talking about because they want to be accurate so um, yeah 
it's, it's, I appreciate you saying that because again, I think a lot of people have this impression of medium and there are, like I said, there are some of them that are like that. So well, it's such a big, um, it's such a widespread, it's like almost an inverse of what people expect is that these misconceptions are so widespread that mm-hmm. actual elements are not known. Yeah. So you, you, you have this reading with Carolyn and I, I'm, I'm assuming your mind's going through trying to debunk it. How did she figure this out? Did she look me up? Well, actually, no, it was because of, you know, the work that I do and the way I kind of have to do this on the fly, I have to, you know, be able to assess veracity pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. It became apparent to me very quickly that she didn't look me up because I knew I can match up information. I knew these things weren't recorded anywhere. Mm-hmm. There was no place for her to get them from. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know some people I've heard of mediums say that people have come back and and asked about cold or hot reading and, you know, people looking up information. But if you really pay attention to the information readings, I think that it's not stuff that can be looked up. Right. Right. So what would you call yourself now? Um, you were, you were materialist before. Um, would you, would you still call yourself an atheist or how would you describe yourself? An atheist, because I think that, um, one of the things I think is uh, important about this, and I know there are other people who have this, who have the same view, um, is that nothing about um, about me changed, or even about my beliefs changed? I just know different things now, and I was not aware of those things before. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think atheism has to do with religion and deities, and um, you know, those practices and beliefs. And I also think materialism, even though people don't realize it, is a belief. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you kind of have a stance that's um, you know, it just kind of goes by what you know to be true, what you've experienced, what you studied. I don't think that's a belief system. I don't know what you would call it, but um, I think one of the difficult, and I get that question all the time if people find out that I've had these experiences, they're like, oh, so are you religious now? You do believe in God now? And I'm like, no, none of that has changed. This, right. to me, falls under, I think it's just science we haven't given a name yet. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi there, I'm really excited to tell you about my latest ebook. It's four lessons that you can learn from the near-death experience without going through all the trouble of dying to learn them. I've been studying NDEs for several years now. I am completely convinced that not only are they 100% real, but that there's some very universal wisdom that we can get from the near-death experience. And I've distilled that down in this book into four short lessons. And I've also given you all the reasons why I believe the NDEs are absolutely real. So go to www.grieftogrowth.com slash NDE lessons to pick it up for free www.grief2growth.com slash NDE lessons. I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And, you know, it's interesting because um, I've had people, a lot of people who are atheists say to me, I, I don't believe in God. And I'll say, well, tell me what you don't believe in. And then they tell me, and I'm like, well, I don't, I don't believe in that either. So I honestly don't know whether I would call myself an atheist or not. I don't believe in a being that we would call God a big, giant human in the sky, that type of thing. So I think you and I would have that in common. But I think the word atheist has been made synonymous with materialists. And I think those are two very different things because a materialist has a very, what I would call a very limited view of reality that says... I would also say that it enforces, and I think materialists do this, they enforce a false binary on people. 
Mm-hmm. So you kind of, once you have an experience like this or you validate it, you come out of it not understanding if this means that you're religious now, because it's been so synonymous with religion, superstition, and belief. And right. it really isn't right. you know, at its core level. It's really not. It's really, and, and science is starting to take us there and philosophy is taking us there. And, and it's, so it's not, it's not, it doesn't have to be a religious system, as you said, it's just reality. We either, we either are more than our bodies or we're not. Um, and, you know, to explore it openly, as you, as you found out, when you started going down the rabbit hole, there's, there's all this information. So I know you, you had the um, medium experiences, but you've also some, had some other experiences. You did some hypnosis. Um. Yeah. Once I, it wasn't like I wanted to try everything, but in, um, <clears throat> in my view, it was also important to um, sort of approach this new information from every angle I could find to approach it. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I started reading books um, that were well regarded by people or recommended by people who were aware that consciousness survived death because it's such a, a strangely diffused notion. Um, so I read, you know, Brian Weiss's book and um, mm-hmm. Michael Newton's books. And what Michael Newton's books uh, indicated was that, you know, he developed a hypnosis protocol that could uncover some of these things or some knowledge of them. So I went to, um, I went to one regular hypnotherapist and I went to one of his hypnotherapists and, you know, I had, I experienced both of those things and they were interesting. Um, you know, you get like a little bit of information about whether or not you had a past life or, but my, um, my, his thing, Michael Newton's thing is life between lives and mine was, um, it was atypical because Mm -hmm. usually it follows a very strong protocol. And then, um, during the part where you're supposed to meet your guides or counselor or whatever. I actually only saw my husband and I've mentioned this, the group, the hypnotherapist was kind of annoyed because it was like not supposed to go that way. And he was like, you know, why don't you tell him he can go into the light or something like that. And my husband got annoyed, but he only let me talk to him and I couldn't access anybody else. I don't know if it would happen that way now, but that was as far as I got. And then afterwards he was saying, well, maybe, you know, you're too, um, you're too steeped in grief or something, but I didn't think that was the case because I felt pretty, um, you know, I do think that having this knowledge uh, changes the trajectory of grief. It doesn't cancel it, but it definitely changes it. It does. Um, You know, mediums will say that too. Mediums grieve. Uh, And I've seen John Edward talk about that in videos where he says, people say, well, isn't this just like normal for you? Like you, and he's like, no, I'm still hurt. I still feel really terrible right now. You know, this person is dead and, and I'm going to miss them. So, I mean, I think we all have to go through that. But having, you know, it, it mystifies me that this information is accessible and so many people are walled off from it. Um, you know, it's almost upsetting. Like, you can't save them all. But yeah. a lot of people, you know, you just see them grieving. I mean, in this context, I always call, I differentiate between people who have lost a partner who know this and don't. I call people who don't muggle widows because yeah. uh, it's kind of like that you know, it's that difference, but, um, I mean, there's still grief, obviously. Well, you know, you, earlier you mentioned that it doesn't change your day-to-day life, but I would, I would push back on that a little bit. It doesn't change your day-to-day life in terms of the physical reality. As you said, you, you can't go to husband to target with your husband, Yeah, it's, it's definitely. Physical. but, but there is a, I'd say a softening of the grief and, and it makes it more, um, it puts, I think, in a, in a different perspective that, you know. Yeah, it definitely does. Like, um, 
I think the way that I was thinking of it is there are certain physical things that, you know, that can rarely be replaced. There might be repartnering. I see a lot of people, you know, go that route as a kind of approach to grief. But um, I think it kind of opens up a third area of learning and researching and um it's not a distraction per se, but it redirects your thought process. So instead mm -hmm. of sitting on the couch, you know, kind of like, oh, I wish he was sitting next to me, I'm here talking to you, you know? Yeah. So there are yeah. these differences that kind of, like, and I was saying it changes the trajectory. So if I had never encountered this information, I don't know what the trajectory would be, but there were things I did, like I went, you know, to those hypnosis things and I went to an ayahuasca ceremony and, um, you know, I've done lots of different things. I've talked to mediums. So those just create a completely different path. And I don't think enough people are on those paths to necessarily get a lot of data about them. Yeah. I think that could be really important one day, um, especially as this information becomes more mainstream and less shunned by science. You know, you have mm -hmm. scientists coming out. And um, like when we were talking about, you know, it becoming more mainstream in science, and I said I think that the um, that simulation theory is kind of going to be a point of di of um, convergence here, mm -hmm. because you have mainstream scientists who are saying, or figures in science who are talking about simulation theory seriously, and I think that when these discoveries keep kind of getting on the map, eventually they're kind of just going to merge, and those two things are going to be the same. It's going to be the secular understanding of their survival of consciousness after death. I think that's my suspicion. Yeah, I think so too. And I think I always say is, you know, what we call supernatural is just what we don't understand yet. It doesn't. So as you're, I think you're right. I think science and philosophy and religion are all kind of merging and we're coming to this one big unified theory. And the people who are religious had a lot of it, right. Some of it wrong, but a lot of it right all along in terms of, us being eternal beings and us being spirit, you know, having like in the good place, like everybody had 8%. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I think, um, I think, I think that's what kind of what we're coming to. So I, I do want to ask you about your ay ayahuasca experience too, though. Yeah, that was um, in August. Actually, when I said the good place though, I, I've tried to explain Emanuel Swedenborg to people by saying that he was like Doug Forsett. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. he got so much of it. But um, ayahuasca, I have been interested in ayahuasca for a long time um, because of, and it's like, it, it's become more of a, a thing that people are interested in because of social media. Um, there is an expensive, well, it's, it's a well-regarded ayahuasca retreat in Costa Rica that's making it more accessible. It used to be a little bit harder to find, but I was interested in it before. And I remember having this conversation with somebody I used to work with at Snopes and they mentioned um, knowing somebody then being in Peru and just encountering it. And, um, you know, they said, and everybody goes to the same place. And I said, well, you know, it stimulates the part of the, everybody's part of the brain that makes them think they're in this place. And then they were like, yeah. So as a materialist, um, I still found it compelling, but I thought that it just um, induced identical hallucinations for people. And I found that mm. fascinating. Um, mm -hmm. And DMT is kind of, they're kind of paired together a lot. Um, mm -hmm. And ayahuasca is more ceremonial. It's a little bit more intense because DM DMT causes similar, um, it, it causes a similar experience, but it's far shorter and there's a lot less physical um, 
intensity to it because ayahuasca has some side effects. Well, DMT breaks down very quickly in your body. Yeah. And the, the thing about ayahuasca, it is a DMT experience, but the way they prepare it, it extends it. It allows the DMT to stay in your body longer. Yeah. And, and that part does make it a little bit more physically taxing. You know, yeah. A yeah. lot of nausea and, and related stuff. But um, mm -hmm. so this kind of changed my view of ayahuasca or what I really had to see what it was like to make a decision. But I noticed that most people who had experienced ayahuasca or DMT, they seem to firmly believe uh, that it's a portal idea. Very mm -hmm. few people, even materialists who have tried it, say that it's a hallucination. Almost everybody says it takes you somewhere. <clears throat> so I wanted to see that for myself. Um, mm -hmm. And I found a more local, there are a few ayahuasca ceremonies in the States, but most people used to have to go to the Amazon for it. Um, right. And I went to a ceremony and um, it was, I haven't had any experience with any psychedelics at all in my life. So this was, it's kind of like going from zero to a hundred, you know, people say, oh, you should try this and try that. And I'm like, I don't know what type of lifestyle you think I lead that I can have access to all these things. I can't, you know, <laughs> I mean, for this kind of stepping stone thing, that's not, I don't know anybody. I don't go to fish shows. So I, I right. have that. So, um, right. and I'm not against it. I've heard that they can be very helpful, but it's also just not something most of us have access to. So I went to an ayahuasca ceremony and, um, yeah. So like, I mean, do you have any questions about it that I, cause I don't want to like, I, you know, I, you know, I, I think I talked to you about this. I've, I've been interested in it. I had a guy send me a book. This was several years ago. He wanted me to review his book and he had gone to South America and done, done an ayahuasca ceremony. I had never heard of it before. So it was kind of what you talked about. You fly to Costa Rica, wherever it was. And it's a, it's a whole weekend type of thing. Um, and I've had friends talk to me about mushrooms, which, you know, sounds like an interesting experience. I haven't done any of them. I, I have anxiety, so I'm scared of what would happen to me if I did something like this. So yeah, and I just heard you also have anxiety, and I was scared of that also. So yeah, I just want to know what your experience was like, and what did you think of afterwards? Well, it was two nights. Um, so I kind of went to it, and I don't know if this is like an ego type of thing or or how, but I know that I read a lot, and I went to a lot of social media places where people discussed it, and everybody talked about what they kind of wanted to experience. And I remember thinking, well, my the, the knowledge that I'm seeking is so different than, you know, I don't want to know what career I should do, or I don't want to know, you know, if I should stay married to my partner, you know, this is kind of like about life and death and it's more philosophical. So I thought my experience would be different and mm. it really wasn't. Um, mm. I don't really remember dreams. And I started having dreams not long before the ceremony that were really detailed. Um, and mm. some of them were what I called a reverse false awakening um, where it was like, instead of a false awakening, it was a false, I was dreaming that I couldn't fall asleep and then these experiences would happen and it was just kind of things going on in my personal life that were stressing me out. So I felt like that was almost kind of like a signal from somewhere saying like, you know, you think that what you, what you're looking for is different, but you're really a lot more like everybody else than you think, you know, everybody mm -hmm. is kind of on the same versions of these paths. So mm -hmm. uh, the first night, um, and I think I mentioned this to you. There was, um, so you get offered one cup of it and then a second one. And I drank the first cup of it. And I have a very, um, people always say that it tastes bad and it's gross, but I can't drink beer or any type of alcohol because it tastes too strong. And I didn't think it was terrible. I did have iced tea that I drank after it, but it just tastes kind of like raisins. Um, 
Hmm. And I drank it and nothing really was happening. Like that I noticed that there was some visual kind of like, I looked up at the trees and they looked more fuzzy, but not like less sharp. They looked more sharp. And then Mm -hmm. um, I drank the second cup of it and it was really strong. So my first night was terrifying. Um, And it's very hard to put into words. The colors are different than we see here. Um, And it was just kind of bombarding me with all of these terrifying I don't even know how to explain it. It was, it was so like, it felt sinister and it was upsetting and, mm-hmm. and it was so, um, then around, so everybody slept outside that night and around nine thirty in the morning, I went inside, um, to kind of sleep inside for a little while. And right before I closed my eyes, I saw my husband and he was kind of like, ah, oh, you did it, baby. <laughs> like, oh, wow. well, because he always thought that I was kind of like a, not like a goody two shoes, but he had more experiences with stuff like that than I did not ayahuasca, but it was kind mm-hmm. of like, he was like, not like proud of me, but he was like, Oh, Hey, good job. So, and then I, I fell asleep a little bit and I just spent that whole day kind of like, I should go home. I could drive home. I don't have to do this again. What if it's as bad or worse? And I was really fighting with myself, but I made the decision five minutes before the ceremony to stay. And the reason why I wanted to stay was because if it was not bad, then I would have an incomplete experience. I would only remember the scary stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. And the second night was just so much. It was like the polar opposite. The the main thing I remember is being brought places all over the world um, that I'd never seen. I couldn't even tell you where they were. Like I would get a feeling like, this kind of looks like Africa, but I have no idea where, like it was desert and the sky, I could see the sky. And, you know, there were just so many different places that were calm and quiet and peaceful. Um, And I remember just, it was just so different. And that's the whole, the whole second night was like that. And Hmm. I didn't really understand it. I had a long drive home. I had to drive about six hours home the following day. And Mm -hmm. even during that time, nothing really, um, I didn't really figure it out. And then, maybe one or two nights later I was watching Outlander and out of nowhere, like it just kind of hit me that my first night's experiences were, um, it was showing me that even though I have a handle on this stuff philosophically and I research and, you know, I do all the stuff that I'm supposed to do and I'm not displeased with the direction my life is going and I live with a lot of fear. It was showing Mm. me that the fear that I was seeing was mine. It was like holding up a mirror to me saying, you kind of, you carry this around with you all the time and you're not, paying attention to it so I'm making you look Hmm, and then I realized that I realized that you know I am afraid of so many things I'm afraid of um not you know like immediate threats but one of the things that I realized I was afraid of is like every day I wake up that my husband's not physically here is scary to me it's like how many Mm -hmm. more of these do I have to endure Mm -hmm. um yeah and just things like you know work and um my house and things like that just all these fears that I I don't look at and I pretend don't exist. So mm-hmm. I was grateful for that scary experience because it was something I needed to see. But, you know, I didn't think that that's what ayahuasca was going to show me, but it did. So it really, you don't, I don't think you get much say in what it shows you or what she That's did. what everybody says. Yeah. This is, ayahuasca shows you what you need to see, not what you want to see. Yeah, I was thinking it would be kind of things about, you know, my inquiries into you know, survival of consciousness. And it was nothing like ayahuasca does not care. <laughs> it, 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 <laughs> and that was another thing I felt like my, my expectations, it, it was indifferent to those, <laughs> but it wasn't yeah. the, even the scary part was something that was, it was good. And I can see why they call it medicine. It kind of treated that for me. It didn't cure it, but it treated it. 
Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting as you say this, it reminds me of uh, near-death experiences. And I was interviewing PMH Atwater, who's done all this research on near-death experiences. And it takes people usually several years, on average, like seven years to integrate a near-death experience to really understand it and fully get the meaning behind it. And people have these, what they call hellish near-death experiences. And some people say, well, that means there's a hell. But a lot of times people that have those experiences say it's the best thing that ever happened to them. It's like you said, it's like a mirror is being held up to them and showing them what's missing in their life or what's lacking or what fears they may be carrying around or something of that nature. So sometimes those those negative things are actually for our benefit. Yeah, I mean, I would almost think that um, <clears throat> they're kind of not necessarily like cousin experiences, but they both seem to serve similar purposes. And I remember on Reddit, um, every so often, and I think you see this in some of the generalized groups too, there are people who come in with these gigantic fears of death. And they'll start 20 threads in one day about their fears of what happens next. And one mm -hmm. of these people had encountered stories of hellish NDs, and it was like the only ND that existed was a hellish one. Yeah. And they were asking why that might happen if there is no hell. And I think I commented that um, it might be some sort of a signal. And who knows where the signal comes from? It could be from yourself that, you know, you need to go a different way. You're, you should look at things and change them. And some people took exception to that. But um it's, you know, it's such a small percentage, but, you know, these are important questions that people have about what their meaning is. And I do think that NDs, um, a lot of times in ayahuasca have the same message, which is like, okay, so in your normal day-to-day -day life, you're not going to get this, but this is kind of like, here, you can see it now. And Yeah. Well, you know, when I was interviewing PMH, she told a story about someone who had, they stood up in a thing and they said, I had a hellish death experience. And she told all about it. And she said, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. And then there was another guy that stood up in the same meetings and he had a beautiful near death experience. So it was the worst thing that ever happened to him because he didn't want to be back here. And all he wanted to do is go back and be where he was. And for that woman, it kind of said, you're not on the path that you really need to be on. So it was, it was a, it was a correction. It was a course correction for her. So um, it's, it's important that we, I guess, interpret these things. And it's, it's good that, you know, you were able to do that and overcome your fears and do it. And maybe one day I'll, I'll be able to overcome mine and do it. Yeah, I mean, it is definitely like I want to go back and experience it again, but it's it's a it's a it's a big undertaking. But you know, I, yeah. I think you would take it seriously. I think that uh, taking and also integration is one of the most common topics in discussion of it. A lot of people, I think, do come back. Well, I know that they do. I read some books on it, and some have a very difficult time integrating. And you know, it's kind of that question of. Um, you know, if this information was more readily available, what would it do to society on a whole? And it's kind of, I don't think it would be as disruptive as we think it would be, but there definitely is, um, you know, people, there is a segment of people who, who are just kind of distracted by finding it out. And uh, I can see, I see that in groups where people have NDs where they talk about wanting to stay. <clears throat> Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because I, you know, I work on the Soul Phone Project, and I, and I've had we have people that come to the group all the time and say, well, what's that? Always look want to look at the downside of it. What what if this happens? And what if evil entities come through? Or what if people? I don't. know, There was a movie called I think it was called Discovery, where yeah, they I found. Just thinking yeah, about that movie. And the whole the whole point of the movie, I thought it was a terrible movie. I was so excited about seeing it, and it was like everybody decides to commit suicide because yeah. they found out. But. That's not the point. The point is that we're here for a reason and that we do go on eventually, but we are it's still good things about this life. So I think uh, the premise of that movie also and this general idea that, you know, it kind of goes into the idea that this information is deliberately 
occulted or hidden because it would be too bad. It would it wouldn't be good if most people had awareness of. Yeah. And um, I think that movie kind of almost goes into like the first five minutes of the idea, whereas I think that if this became common knowledge, if most people were aware of this information, there might be a short adjustment period where people felt like they just wanted to leave here and go there. But I think that would be over pretty quickly. I don't think that most people would, I don't think it would be like the events of the discovery. I think that's like a, you know, it's kind of almost like the first idea that people jump to and then right. probably think it through more. Yeah, exactly. Well, and you, you think about it for most of the history of mankind, we believed in life after death. Yeah. I mean, most people have, have believed in that. Um, maybe not to the point where it's proven, but it, again, going back to Swedenborg, which you and I both know, I mean, Swedenborg says there was a time when this was common. People spoke to spirits just like you and I sitting talking to each other and that kind of mankind's kind of forgotten that. My theory is I think we're kind of, we've overcorrected into the materialistic point of view and we've forgotten who, and I think that's a big part of our problem now is people don't understand who we are, who we are related to each other, you know, how we go on and stuff like that. And then, so when someone does, um, I hate to use the word die, but use the common word die we think they're gone and that causes this, this intense despair that could be mitigated by understanding that they're not really gone. And that kind of leads me to the next thing I want to talk about. I want to talk about uh, the right strength society mm -hmm. because I know you believe in having ongoing relationships with people who we think are departed. Yes. I mean, in the event that that's, um, you know, it's appropriate for the person. Like um, I think one of the things that we've discussed um, in the group, in that group before is that, um, even just that is a very um, disruptive idea or suggestion because um, in the context, and I think it's different for, you know, the parent groups because, um, you know, it's not, it's not, a, I don't know how to explain it. If you say that in a group of people who are widowed, um, a very large percentage of them take it personally and feel that, <clears throat> sorry, the suggestion implies that they don't care about their partner if they repartner. So it kind mm -hmm. of, that's one of the uh, the things that makes it like a, a disruptive topic, but sure. And I think that that kind of limits it because, um, you know, I think when you have different relationships, like different bonds, it's not as disruptive. And this particular one is a bit more disruptive, but yes, that's, you know, the, the purpose of it, of the group is to kind of, um, you know, we noticed that people were doing this um, and a lot of people were interested in it. It's just something that a lot of people weren't talking about. So explain to me what it is. What is the Registering Society? What's the, what's, what's it about? <clears throat> well, it's, um, it's a site. It's kind of linked to a Facebook group and the group meets mm -hmm. on Saturdays um, in a Zoom room. But um, basically there, you know, I find these people here and there. There are some people whose partner dies or, you know, and, um, passes on or whatever and and they mm -hmm. grieve and everybody you know for the most part grieves that's um and then some people kind of think that they um you know or they're young and they want to have another partner they want to have a family they want to you know and even people who it doesn't matter what age or people repartner at any age but there's a certain percentage of people that kind of think um they don't know it's an option to have contact most people don't really know that's an option. So when they know it's an option, there are always people that do want to remain in contact with their partner and they don't see their partner physically dying as being a barrier to their relationship continuing, which sounds to a lot of people like completely crazy. But for me personally, I know 
before any of this stuff existed on that day when I hung up with Carolyn, I was like, oh, okay, well, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> like I knew that. Mm -hmm. And actually <clears throat> when I was in England, it was maybe like two or three days after my husband died and my father-in-law just mentioned like, you know, well, you don't want to be alone forever. I'm sure that, you know, you'll meet somebody. And, and I was like, I don't think so. I don't think that I don't want to. <laughs> and I was like, that might, might change. It's been three days, but I have a feeling right. it's not going to. So I think early on, a lot of people know that. Um, and I don't think it's binary. I think you can do both, but I don't think most people do. I think they usually do one or the other. Yeah. Well, you know, I think it's a really interesting topic. And for, for me, in, in my case, my departed person is a daughter. So, you know, it's not a matter of repartnering. That's not an yeah. option. It's my daughter will always be my daughter. <laughs> and so I, I do want to maintain that contact. You know, for a young person like yourself, when you're widowed, you know, people, kind of expect you to want to repartner because you're young and you still have your whole life ahead of you and all that stuff. Um, and I think it's, you know, as you said, it's, it's optional. It doesn't have to be binary. I know people who are widowed that still honor their partners and they're remarried. Yeah. And, and fortunately they've got an, a, another partner that understands that and is not jealous of that, you know, that other person. So it's not a binary thing, but I think it's really, um, great that you provide that support for people that want to have that option. Yeah. And I think also, um, for me personally, I feel like I'm an outlier even in that group because most people, um, their partners were, they were physically in the same place as their partners for most of their relationship. Whereas my husband mm -hmm. and I, you know, were between continents for over a decade. So I'm used to knowing, you know, in the early years of our relationship, people would say, you can't have a long distance relationship for two years or three years. That's too long. And you know, mm -hmm. we did it for over 10 years. So um, I already know that I, how I feel in his absence. And I know that in all those years, I never felt like I needed a partner here. So um, I feel like I can know that a little bit more easily than a lot of people, but um, hmm. there is an adjustment period, you know, with, with a physical loss, I think in any situation. But I think for most people in the group, it's a little bit more present because I'm used to him being in England a lot of the time. So, um, you know, it's, 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 uh, but we still, we have so many members and for the most part, people are making the adjustment just fine. And it does seem to change the, you know, sometimes people come in early and sometimes they find us after a year or two. And with the people who come in early, I feel like you do, we're, we're starting to see a real difference when they realize they can continue their relationship. It doesn't make the early grief any easier, but it adds this whole element of joy and, um, you know, togetherness that they don't have, that most people are deprived of. And I think you probably understand what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. It's like a, it's a two-sided thing, but when I sit down and I think about how many people <clears throat> are deprived of this knowledge and deprived of these options, it makes me so sad <laughs> because, yeah. you know, you can't just go up to people and be like, you know, you they, it's, it's a big deal thing. So, um, well, yeah. And I really like the way you put that, Kim, it's, it's a matter of option. It's a matter of choice, you know? And, um, again, my, my thing is I deal with parents, so I don't, I don't know a single parent that doesn't want to carry on that relationship if they think there's any hope to do it. Uh, in your case with the spouse, as I said, with some people, it, it might be a little bit different, but to know, to put that option in front of people and let them know that it's, it's not just wishful thinking. It's not, it's not that you're crazy. It's not that, um, you know, science has totally debunked this is, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I was listening to, um, it was an author. I think it was on Skeptica. I love that, that yeah, podcast. I, I usually, I'm listening. 
this guy's on there and he calls himself an expert. And so Alex is talking about, you know, afterlife and the guy, they had a book, he had a chapter in their death experiences. So the host asked him, so what studies have you read? What have you studied about near death experience? And the guy kept him hawing around, basically finally said, well, nothing. I'm, I haven't, I haven't studied anything on it because it's impossible. So the, why would I study it? Is this the guy that recently did the editorial in the New York times? I feel like I, I saw those things together because somebody I, did a similar editorial in the New York Times where it was basically, if I recall correctly, the same thing. Like, there's nothing, and that's a huge problem. There's nothing to study. And the fact yeah. that people believe this is so, it's so, just, it doesn't allow people to access the information because if you tell them it doesn't exist, they believe that. You know, anything yeah. that does exist is, and that's one thing I've, I've noticed with other materialists is that they'll ask me for a study for any element of it and I'll provide an actual study. And mm-hmm. it's like, they can't even see it either. They don't respond or they say it must be some sort of woo journal or probably be retracted. It's, it's like this invisibility. Yeah. I had a guy in, in the group that you and I are both part of, and it's called afterlife topics and metaphysics. It's a Facebook group, uh, that was uh, founded by a guy named Cyrus Kirkpatrick. So that's, I think, where you and I met. Yeah. And a guy came in and he said, there's no, there's no evidence of any of this. So I kind of went to you. And I think the gold standard is mediumship. So I said, there's mediumship. Well, no one's ever done any studies on it. So I gave him Dr. Julie Beischel and I gave him Dr. Um, Gary Schwartz. And the guy goes away. And he comes back like five minutes later. And he says, I looked at their work. It's all about mediumship. I said, yes. <laughs> He said, well, mediumship is fake, so I'm not going to read anything that they said. <laughs> yeah, it's like the goalpost moving that always occurs, but also, like, <clears throat> there's a lot of circular arguing, like, and then if, you know, if they accepted that people have, so the original claim, I guess, was that there are no studies on mediums, and then it, it shifted to, well, mediums are all frauds, so these studies are invalid. Um, mm-hmm. And then if, you know, they were presented with evidence of mediums finding valid information, um, you know, the goalposts shift again, um, but usually it's like, it, it just goes in that cycle. These people are completely primed to reject. And I feel like if I had been confronted with that evidence when I was materialist, I would like to think that I would have said, oh, I was not aware of that. That would be my first impulse is to say, oh, I was not aware of that and look it over. Um, not deny that it exists, but it's almost like, you know, this is such, it keeps, it just goes on and on and on that way. And then, you know, people will insist that the study had flaws. Um, and there was something else I was thinking of in the scene, but it just, it, it's so predictable. You can almost predict mm-hmm. their responses. Well, that's why I spell materialist with a capital M because it's a, it's a religion. It, it's, it's another faith. It's, it's saying we know, you know, we have this belief that this is all that exists and there can't be anything outside of it. And anything that we can't measure it, with our own instruments that we have now surely can't exist. And therefore, they, they reject everything else. So I, I see them as being just as fundamentalist. And it's fun as- just think about science 100 years ago and think of where science will be in 100 years, which will be exponentially further ahead than it was now to 100 years ago. And to think that what we have now measures everything is, I can't believe I ever believed that, but I did. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, scientists have believed that forever. We always think we know everything. You know, the, the what was it? The patent office in like the 1900s was getting ready to close because everything that can be discovered has been discovered. And even as uh, far back as the 1950s, prominent scientists were not materialists. I mean, I would have to look further into it, but I think I recall Albert Einstein wasn't really a materialist. He seemed to allow for the, the odd parts of physics being 
he, but Albert Einstein did not like quantum physics. Yes. He knew it was there, but he didn't, he didn't it like it. It took, it took about 20 years to actually accept it. But you're absolutely right. Most scientists, well, scientists started, they were not materialists. They thought the universe was orderly and was created by a God that could be understood. So the reason why they studied the universe was because they expected to find order in it. And materialism didn't really come along until like maybe 100, 200 years ago. And people said, okay, now we know everything. We know everything there's no, we can measure everything. So we don't, we don't need this. And so that leads to, you know, a lot of, a lot of, I think, false ideas. Um, but it's, it's, if you think about, I, I always use this analogy when I talk to materialists. I'm like, if I, if I can't went back 200 years in time and told someone about radio waves, there's these invisible things called radio waves that can travel. They're traveling through you right now. And I can use those to project my voice across the world in an instant. They would say, well, that's crazy. That's, that's impossible. It's physically couldn't happen. Yeah. I think I've used a similar analogy um, trying to, I think to other widows, because a lot of times, especially in, I don't know if you're in generalized groups versus ones like helping parents heal where not everybody has the same knowledge. And a lot of times widows will, will be like, wait, tell me more. I need to know more about this. And I've used an analogy like if I went back to the year 1994 and ordered a phone, a pizza with my phone and the pizza showed up, it would be like a magic pizza that came out of nowhere because everybody knows I didn't, you know, and it's like, there are so many things, even the way our phones work, a phone without a cord would have been weird before it wasn't. Mm -hmm. So. <clears throat> You know, if you go back far enough to where this technology was corded, the cordless versions look like magic. And there's a saying about that. I think it was Arthur Conan Doyle. It was like any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Exactly. Yeah. It, yeah. I don't know if you've read Real Magic by Dean Radin, but... Um, I haven't read that one yet, no. I think my doctor recommended it. That was one of the other odd things is I switched doctors about six weeks after my husband died and the doctor that I picked out of nowhere happened to be aware of all this stuff. So it was, it was strange because I figured he would be the person to kind of reinforce my materialist viewpoint went the other way, but he recommended that book and Dean Radin. Um, the book real magic is a lot about what we used to know and what, you know, how mis how misguided materialism is hmm. now. And, you know, the way scientists were and, and different cultures, like a lot of this, I think is almost like, the dominant culture. Um, <clears throat> yes. Um, I think I mentioned this um, to my doctor the other day, but I had surgery um, in the Dominican Republic in 2017. And the reason why I'm mentioning this is because I had heard the rumor that a lot of people um, came back and said they don't use pain medication there. And I looked it up and I found a study mm -hmm. that said people in the Dominican Republic um, don't use pain medication as much because um, some of them rely on faith and a lot of people don't want to get addicted to um, to pain medications, but also I noticed a lot of the doctors were strongly Catholic and I come from a strongly Catholic culture. So mm -hmm. to me, that's not terrible, but the idea of a non-materialist surgeon scared me to death. And the yeah. idea of a surgeon praying, it was to me, it was, so, but that's just culturally, I'm used to this in America, doctors not being overtly religious, at least in the area that I'm in. So that was right. so bizarre to me, but it was just me being blind to other cultures not being identical to this one. And real yeah. magic goes into the cultural aspects too. That's a good point. And, and, and it doesn't have to be one or the other. You know, yeah. it can be both. A doctor can be a great surgeon and also believe in energy healing. You know, there's, we, can, we can do both. And so people that, you know, I've heard people say they believe in energy health, for example, like, well, if I have a broken leg, I'm going to go to the hospital. 
<laughs> but if I have, you know, something else, I'm going to use Reiki. And it's so. what I found out through this whole process too, is that it seems like doctors and other people in that field are some of the people with the most stories. It just, it depends on where they take them out. Some of them will only tell them anonymously. Um, <clears throat> but a lot of doctors have seen a lot more than the average person has seen because these settings are sometimes where life and death have a very thin border <laughs> and yeah. they, they get exposed to a lot more. And I think, I mean, the show, the OA, I think we've talked about it, but there were so many concepts addressed in it. And, you know, the main uh, hap in the show, he was an anesthesiologist and it made a lot of sense to me. An anesthesiologist would take that. Right. Kind of, and you, know, it also, um, when you're talking about materialist arguments, what I was going to say was that it usually goes to, if you provide enough proof, it goes to, um, well, then this would be on the news every night. It would be national worldwide news. And there's this like kind of impossible standard, but that was what hap was chasing that he would be international news if he proved there was something after this. And yeah. It's like the information lives out in the open because of this widespread belief that if anybody validated an afterlife at all, that it would be on the front page of every newspaper for the next few months. Yeah. <laughs> well, we can't see what we don't look at. And, you know, it's interesting because um, the government just recently admitted that they're UFOs. Yeah. And it was on the front page of the newspaper and everybody missed it. Yes. No one, that, no one paid any attention to it. That's, I feel like that's, it's like, <clears throat> that's really the problem about this information is not that it doesn't exist. It's not that it doesn't exist in sufficient quantity, quantity. It's not that it's not validated by the right people. It's that it accumulated so slowly and so consistently that it accumulated without our notice. And now the idea has taken root that it does not exist at all. And explaining that it exists in this volume, you know, at this level and who's been verifying it, it proving that is so difficult to people because they've been convinced that it doesn't exist at all. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting dilemma, but the thing is, I, I, I appreciate what you're doing. It's, it's been really great talking to you and, and looking, you know, looking at your journey and, um, like I said, I, I'm a believer in, I think our lives are kind of planned out. I think things happen when they're supposed to. And as I talk to you and I hear about your, your, your encounters uh, with your life, I can see, you know, there's, there's a lot going on there that uh, there's stuff going on behind the scenes. Yeah, that's, I, I definitely got that. <clears throat> I always say that when I got off phone with Carolyn, it's like it all felt, it was like a game of Tetris. Like it just all fell into place around me. Like I was like, wow, this can't be an accident, but also like, okay, all of that stuff was real. It was like all the little pieces kind of came together and formed a complete puzzle. Like I saw it finally all at once. But yeah, it feels that way. It definitely does not feel like, you know, I just happen to be the person who does this and I happen to have this experience. Yeah. Well, Kim, <laughs> it's been really, really great talking to you. I want to tell people again, your website is uh, redstringsociety.com so people can find you there. And you also work for truthorfiction.com. You guys are doing a great job there and, and debunking all the crap that we have to go through now. So I appreciate your work there too. Thank you. Well, Kim, uh, you have a great afternoon. I know you've been really busy. I appreciate you squeezing me in. Thank you. And thanks for having me. All right. Talk to you later. Well, I hope you enjoyed the episode. I want to make it really easy for you to reach me. So just send me a text to 31996 and simply text the word growth, G-R-O-W-T-H. In fact, you can right now just say, Hey Siri, Send a message to 31996, and when Siri asks you what you want to send, just say growth. You can do the same thing with OK Google. Thanks a lot. Have a wonderful day. Thanks for listening to Grief to Growth. Brian hopes that you find this episode helpful and will come back for future episodes. 
Brian's best-selling book, Grief to Growth, Planted Not Buried, is a great resource for anyone who is coping with grief or knows someone who is. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to support it, there are three things you can do to help. The first is to share the podcast with someone that you think it will help. The second is to go to iTunes, rate, and review the episode. The third way you can support the podcast is by becoming a patron. Head over to www.patreon.com slash grief to growth. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash grief, the number two, growth, and sign up to make a small monthly donation. Patrons get access to exclusive bonus content and knowledge that you are helping to spread the message of grief to growth. For more about Brian and grief to growth, visit www.grieftogrowth.com. Hey there, if you like this episode, come on over and talk about it. Let me know what you liked. If you didn't like this episode, come on over and talk about it. Let me know what you didn't like. Go to grieftogrowth.com slash community and look for talk about the podcast. I'll see you there.